0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: On December 9th of last year, Travis Kling tweeted, Plus token, cloud token, one coin. We will likely look back on this period for BTC when number didn't go up while the macro backdrop was so exceedingly bullish and realize with hindsight, that it was because of billions of dollars of selling pressure from exit scams. It's that simple. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto,
0: and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and
1: CypherTrace. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Thursday, June 25th, and today's episode is a little bit different. I was thinking about doing an episode on CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. It's a term that I think you're hearing a lot more in the press right now. There's stirrings about this being at the potential center of a new banking crisis. And I want to do a show about basically a primer on CLOs. However, I didn't feel I had enough chance to really do that justice. So I'm aiming for next week for that, so instead of that, I'm actually going to do an extended brief where I go through five different topics instead of three. There's a ton of stories going on in the markets today, and I thought maybe this was the right episode for the moment. First up on the brief, let's talk about continued pain in the jobs market. Today is Thursday, which means that we got the latest jobless claims numbers, and they are holding consistent right around 1.5 million new claims it was 1.48 million claims to be exact. Now, the prediction was 1.32 million claims. So again, for the second week in a row, while we did see a drop in new claims, it was much lower than anticipated. What's more, going back to this concern that I've addressed on numerous episodes about whether there will be a white-collar second wave of layoffs, Macy's announced that they're cutting 3,900 corporate jobs in restructuring, which amounts to 3% of their workforce. Now, there was good news as well. Continuing claims finally got under 20 million. They're at 19.5 million. So that is the drop that they anticipated last week, only getting it this week, but it still shows that there is some movement at least. But you're still talking about 20 million continuing jobless claims. Why it matters? Well, I think this one is pretty clear. This is obviously one of the key indicators for the economy. And this suggests that no matter what the markets say, there is no V shaped recovery beyond them. Even if you are very happy about where your stock prices have gone since the March and April lows, there's no way to deny that when it comes to this fundamental indicator of long term health of the economy, i.e., whether people have jobs and can pay for things, is not going in that same V shape. And for the first time in a long time, there is some reaction from stocks on the news, but we're still very far away from having a market that seems to accurately reflect what's going on in the real economy. Which brings us to number two on the brief mediocre whack a mole. That is former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers' term for what's going on right now as it relates to COVID 19. In a speech yesterday, he estimated that 30% of the economy will have to be shut down either voluntarily or by decree to prevent the pandemic from getting out of control. And this is obviously on the back of surges in cases in places like Texas and Florida. New York is actually now quarantining people coming from those high-infection states for 14 days if they visit New York. You're also seeing economic evidence of the impact of this latest surge in places like Open Table Bookings, which are cratering in those same high-infection states. Now, I think it's pretty clear why this is important. What happens with the COVID 19 crisis in terms of both the health outcomes and our response to them in terms of policy is the single biggest factor in what will shape our economy over the next six months, even more than the Fed, even more than Dave Portnoy. Third on the brief, I want to talk about the plus token scam pressure on Bitcoin's price. On December 9th of last year, Travis Kling tweeted plus token, cloud token, one coin. We will likely look back on this period for BTC when number didn't go up while the macro backdrop was so exceedingly bullish and realize with hindsight that it was because of billions of dollars of selling pressure from exit scams. It's that simple. Travis's point here is that in spite of all of these narrative tailwinds, in spite of the entrance of these really high-profile actors into the Bitcoin space, there is this exogenous pressure that is the slow drip of ill-begotten Bitcoin being sold back out via exchanges from these scams. Travis doubled down on this assessment yesterday, saying it is more true today than it was six months ago. Plus token has been a major market factor since early 2019. Analysis from At Ergo BTC and others proves around 165,000 Bitcoin from PlusToken were mixed and sent to Huobi and OkX since August. This week, more than 200 million of ETH slash EOS slash XRP have moved. I think it's a really salient point and a reminder of just how much is going on at any given moment that you don't see or that we don't natively think about when it comes to what the price is. It's a good reminder to not be so obsessed with the price in the short term and keep a focus on the long-term fundamentals. Keep a focus on the new people coming into this space who have discovered those fundamentals and who are interested in investing in them over the long term. Speaking of Bitcoin investment, our fourth topic is the Bitcoin option expiry. So, what's going on? Tomorrow is the largest ever options expiry with 114,700 option contracts with a notational value of over $1 billion expiring. They're spread across Deribit, CME, backed OKX, and LedgerX. So why does it matter? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. The first is that it's a reflection of just how big derivatives are getting as a part of this market. Even though spot trading has been down with this historically low volatility that we've seen, you have seen this growth in these options and other types of derivatives. The second reason why it might matter has to do with the actual price itself. There's this concept called pinning where basically as option expires, people who have a particular stake in a particular outcome of those options try to pin the spot price to one direction or another in order to avoid sharp losses. Basically, the idea here is that those who would benefit from a higher price of the underlying asset, which means the put sellers and the call buyers, take long positions in the spot market to increase the price before expiration. In other words, they are trying to drive the price up before the expiration so that their contracts do better. The inverse is also true. Those who benefit from a drop in the underlying price, in other words, the put buyers and the call sellers, take short positions in order to keep prices low. Analysis by SKU suggests that the bulk of the distribution of this open interest is slightly higher than where we are today. So that's between 10000 and 11000 strike price. Coindesk also points out that on the downside, there is a notable open interest buildup around 9000 Whether this will actually drive the price anywhere and whether we'll see this phenomenon of pinning, I think is a little bit up for grabs. Many people think that there's just not quite enough volume yet, even though it's growing so fast, to really make a difference. But in this case, we are back to point one of why it matters, this idea that this is a reflection of just how big derivatives are getting. This is a major surge in activity, and something that we've seen consistently throughout this year is the growth of this types of options trading. So even if we don't see this pinning effect now with this expiry, it's likely that in the future this may be a part of the market that we need to keep in mind. Bitstamp
2: is the original global cryptocurrency exchange.
1: last up, let's talk about Apple's UX-driven privacy triumph. So what's going on? In iOS 14, which was just announced, Apple will be fundamentally changing the way that consumers interact with their privacy options. Basically, what's going on is that there's something called the identifier for advertisers, which is the thing that tracks people across apps to attribute an ad's effectiveness. For example, if Lyft serves you an ad for an install on one app, And then you install it, the identifier for advertisers allows them to actually track you between those two apps. Now, consumers have always been able to turn this off in general, right, overarchingly, but it's buried in settings and most people don't know. What will happen now is that users will have to manually approve this via pop up for each app. So every time a user uses a new app, they'll have the ability to say, yes or no, this can track me or this can't track me across other apps. Victor Wong wrote, Apple will not share the IDFA with apps and their partners until the user gives permission to each specific app that wants to share or receive data based on the IDFA. That means that if a user does not opt in for the New York Times app, but then opts in to Candy Crush's gaming app, you won't be able to link activity between the two apps. That means New York Times won't be able to retarget anonymized app users on other apps to encourage them to come back and subscribe. In essence, it becomes very hard to run a scaled data-driven ad campaign across multiple apps. So why is this important? Well, there's a whole slew of reasons. The first is that this is already what consumers wanted. The number of consumers opting into Apple's limit ad tracking option is up 216% in the last four years, and this is something that, again, as I said, is absolutely buried in the settings. You have to know you're looking for it and intentionally go and do this. And it's up, like I said, more than double in the last four years. This is, I believe, a huge win for privacy. This takes something that is opaque and difficult to do and makes it, via the UX of the app, much more clear and much more regular. Every consumer will now be faced with the decision to say, yes or no, I do or don't want you to be tracking me. Guess what? Most consumers are going to say no to most of the apps that they have. Now, the mobile ad industry is, understandably, a little freaked out about this. Not that this was unexpected. In fact, most mobile advertisers were sure that this was coming, they just didn't know when. And in fact, most thought it would be the end of this IDFA system entirely, rather than this very clever way that Apple has gone about it, which doesn't actually end the system, it just basically neuters it. If you assume that the vast majority of people are going to say, no, I don't want these apps tracking me across other apps, Then you have effectively killed a thing without actually saying you've killed it. There is a ton of money spent on this sort of mobile attribution advertising every year. It's something like a $45 billion to an $80 billion industry, depending on your estimates. And they are concerned because they are worried that advertisers simply won't spend if they don't have that good attribution data. I have to say that when it comes to the arguments for this somehow being a bad thing, I am highly unconvinced. First is the argument that this will hurt the $45 billion to $80 billion mobile ad industry. Maybe that's true in the short term. You have set up an expectation where there is extremely easy attribution from an action to a result that advertisers love advertising against because they have clear outcomes and results. And those people who are concerned are probably correct that in the short term, advertisers will shift their budgets away from that advertising if they find it less effective or less data rich than they did before but there are a lot of reasons to completely not care about that. The first of which is that advertisers aren't simply going to stop spending the money that they would have spent on mobile advertising entirely. They're going to put it in other places, maybe even in other types of mobile advertising. The competition to get consumers will continue unabated. This is a consumer society that demands marketing and advertising to go acquire new users. Even if this attribution becomes harder, these dollars will find their way to someone who will build advertising and marketing companies to capture those dollars and deliver ads to consumers. It is a natural way of things for the constraints of platforms to change the nature of businesses that interact with those platforms. It's just a reality of the world. So tough noogies, I guess, is the best way to put it. The second part is that this sort of attribution, this sort of incredibly rich data mining is part and parcel. In fact, it is the central pillar of the surveillance capitalism apparatus that has dominated or has come to dominate everything around us. In what world do we think it's okay and normal for an app that we're interacting with this tiny fractional amount to be able to just track us across all of the different experiences that we're interacting with a priori? That's an absurd abrogation of what it means to have autonomy over your own actions. It is an artifact and a remnant of an era where people don't understand what's happening and where terms of service can give you legal authority to do something while burying the reality of what's happening. In many ways, I think that a UX difference here, where you just elevate what already exists rather than actually changing something, where you shine a light on what consumers have been consenting to by default without knowing that they're consenting to it, really, is much more powerful even than shifting the underlying policy, at least in the short term. And the last argument, of course, follows something along the lines of targeted advertising is such a revolution for people because they get ads that are so much more tailored for them. Well, I don't even know where to begin with that argument. First, the tailoring of messages to people, whether it's to sell them something or to sell them a political position or candidate or idea, is absolutely wreaking havoc on society and culture right now. So that argument does not hold water with me. Second, how much of the crap that comes through these highly customizable retargeting campaigns is something that I actually want, and frankly, that you presume that I wouldn't be able to find if I wanted it anyways? Consumers have been trained to be very good at search and discovery, even without the retargeting algorithms that put it in their face. Those things only serve to try to capture impulses at weak moments, and I don't necessarily think that that's the type of advertising that we should be supporting. So, as you can tell by the fact that this one went on a little longer than the others, this is something that I find almost an unreservedly good thing, and the arguments against it almost uniformly stupid or self-serving. Speaking of self serving, as is Breakdown's policy to never just be entirely one sided about an issue, there is of course the caveat of why Apple doing this. And yes, you guessed it, they are rolling out an alternative to the types of positioning that Google and Facebook use called the SCAD network. The promise of the SCAD network is that it would theoretically allow advertisers to know which ads resulted in desired reactions or actions without revealing specific devices or specific people took those actions. So they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too on privacy. For me, it's entirely possible that the alternatives that Apple ultimately comes up with have their own problems and are things that we need to address. But the reality is is that there's a reason that Apple is, by and large, the most pro-privacy company in Silicon Valley. It's that their business models have always been based on selling people actual things, actual devices, actual hardware, rather than subsidizing everything that they do through advertising revenue they have the business model that sustains their ability to look moral, and we should take into account that there is a business model underlying and justifying their position, and maybe have some amount of additional skepticism because of that. But frankly, you could also argue that that just means that their incentives are aligned to actually be an incredibly strong pro-privacy voice in a moment when they know that consumers are frustrated with the way that companies have treated their data. Anyways, as I said on Twitter, my hot take is this. If you're doing a thing that you believe the majority of people wouldn't want you to do if you asked them, maybe the problem is the thing that you're doing. And on that note, I will leave you guys. Thanks for hanging out, thanks for listening, and I will be back tomorrow with another episode of The Breakdown. Until then, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.